Charlotte, who does such a good job with this. And there you are. I was like, who's disappeared from my view? And, uh, and Nicole uh, Glover, uh, who, brought that, uh, who brought that sheep in and is nursing that sheep. Were you guys thinking what I was thinking? How long till it's edible? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Just saying. Y'all know what? Anybody else like anybody else like to eat? <laughs> just saying. Just saying. If next Sunday's if next Sunday's children's sermon is like a jar of mint jelly, then we know we're on a path. We're headed in a certain direction towards Easter. Uh. <laughs> mm. We could keep going down this path, but how about we get to uh, Scripture today? Uh, there's more I could say, but we'll stop there. Uh, in uh, We can recover from this. Just wait. Hold on. In, uh, in 1839, 1839, quite some time ago, but uh, this church was already here worshiping. Uh, in 1839, uh, John Henry Newman published a book called Apologia Pro Vita Sua, uh, an explanation, an apology, or an explanation for my life is what it is, though he put the title in Latin. He's an Englishman. He was an Oxford professor and a member of what was called the Oxford Movement. Uh, there in the 1830s, there was this discussion about what the English church, the Anglican church, should be like. Uh, should it be more Catholic and a higher church with a stronger hierarchy, or should it be more egalitarian, uh, a very, very early version of socialism and uh, unionism had started to work its way into England, and so they're thinking, should it be more social? Should it, should it be more led by the people, or should it be more uh, Catholic? What is the English church? How should it look? And John Henry Newman was very staunchly on the high church side, the, the side of in favor of the archbishop and of the bishop system, of a higher church, not what we call, what we are, a low church. <laughs> where, uh, that's just what we call it, uh, the low church system where we laugh and have fun and worship the Lord with all our hearts and souls. And then in 1839, he converted to Catholicism, and he wrote this book to explain Many people shocked by this. He was leading this movement to steer Anglicanism more towards that Catholic system, and then he himself converts to Catholicism, and before his death, he is Cardinal John Henry Newman. And so he writes Apologia Provita Sua, an explanation for my life, to explain what is important to him and how he views the church and how it was always leading him in this direction of going in that way. So he explains his ideas and his thoughts that slowly took him in that direction. And it's not surprising, given that uh, he, he joined with the Roman church, that he would title it. It's, it's on purpose. That he would uh, give it a uh, Latin title, title it in Latin, uh, rather than English, although the work is written in English. Well, today, we're turning to Luke for a similar purpose, to give an explanation of a life, really our life, and why we do things the way we do. And in order to talk for us, for me to talk about why I make the decisions I make, and for us to talk about why we make the decisions we make, uh, as we generally follow the same very similar trajectory, all of us, this Baptist way of thinking, to give an explanation for our lives, we'll have to go to, I'll say with a little bit of cheek, our patron saint. Today we're 
reading the words of John the Baptist. <laughs> we'll have to go to the one uh, who we see as similar to us and what John the Baptist said and what his ministry was about, because in that we find so much explanation of who we are and what we do. This is our apologia pro vita sua. This is our explanation for why we live the way we do and make the decisions that we do. Let's pray together and let's read the Word of God. Father God, I thank You so much for Your Word, and I pray that You would help us to believe it today. And I pray that You would fill us with all of the joy of the Lord as we hope and as we trust You, as we worship You. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Luke chapter 3, verse 2. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, God's Word came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. So he went into the vicinity of the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make His paths straight. Every valley will be filled, every mountain and hill will be made low. The crooked will become straight, the rough ways smooth, and everyone will see the salvation of God. Then he said to the crowd who came out to be baptized by him, Brud of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance. And don't start saying to yourself, Oh, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children of Abraham for himself from these stones. The axe is already at the root of the tree. Therefore, everyone that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do? The crowd asked him. And he replied to them, The one who has two shirts must share with the one who has none, and the one who has food must do the same. The tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they asked him, Teacher, what should we do? And he told them, Don't collect any more than what you have been authorized. Some soldiers questioned him, What should we do? He said to them, don't take money from anyone by force or false accusation, but be satisfied with your wages. Now, the people were waiting expectantly, and all of them were questioning in their hearts whether John might be the Messiah. And John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but the one who is coming is more powerful than I. I am not worthy to untie the straps of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing shovel is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with fire that never goes out. Then, along with many other exhortations, he proclaimed good news to the people. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the evil things he had done, Herod added this to everything else. He locked up John in prison." John is a fiery preacher. Let's just talk about his sermon illustrations, first of all. Uh, number one, he declares everybody who has gathered up the children of snakes. He says, you brood of vipers, you children of snakes, who warns you to flee the coming wrath? He commands them to produce fruit consistent with repentance. 
they say, we're Israelites, we're the children of Abraham. God made some promises and He's going to keep them so we can do what we want. And uh, John has a powerful message for them. If you don't repent, this is my paraphrase, if you don't repent, being a child of Abraham is nothing if you don't have the faith of Abraham, is what John is saying to them. God can raise up children of Abraham out of the stones here. If you don't have the faith of Abraham, then the axe is sitting there at the base of the tree, and it's ready to start chopping. Rather, it's the one who have the faith of Abraham are the ones who are the children of Abraham. And even more, he's not done yet. He gives them the sermon illustration of the, the winnowing fork. It says he's here, <laughs> Jesus is here to start sifting. All the crop has been brought in, the weeds and the chaff along with the wheat, and it's time to start sifting it. And everyone who's chaff, who's not producing fruit, is not a fruit of the Spirit, is going to be tossed out into the fire. And then in the midst of his fiery preaching, though, he says this, verse 18, Along with many other exhortations, you are to take all of these things as serious exhortations. He is warning them, but He is also encouraging them to do right. The warning comes with the encouragement. John's not saying to them, hopefully. He's not like Jonah, who really wanted to see the Ninevites killed. Uh, he, Jonah was excited to see the wrath of God poured out. That's not what John's doing. John's just giving it to him straight a wake-up call. You guys have done wrong, but now it is time to prepare the way because the Lord's anointed one is coming soon. And so, it's time to start repenting and bearing the fruit of repentance, he says. And then, verse 18, along with many other exhortations, he proclaimed good news to the people. John wasn't fiery for the sake of fiery. His passionate illustrations were there to wake people up so that they could hear good news and come to trust and, and his, his sermons worked, as we read here. After all, what did people start saying to him once they heard it? Various people in various phases of life said, what, what do we need to do? They heard, they believed, they repented in their hearts, and they said, what, have it, what even are we supposed to do then? The soldiers came forward and asked, what are we supposed to do? And Jesus says, do right, <laughs> live righteous. Says, don't, don't extort people for money. Don't give false testimony. These tax collectors showed up, even tax collectors showed up and said, what do we do? Jesus says, you're going to do it all above board now. You're going to run everything by the books. You're going to do what is right. And He replied to all of them, you're going to share. Let the one who has two shirts, it says, or two coats, perhaps, in the King James, let the one who has two shirts share with the one who has none. And the one who has food do the same. And all of this, we are told, comes from a… I'm good… All of this, we're told, comes from a prophecy from Isaiah, and the prophecy is this, verse 4, a voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make His paths straight. He says all these valleys are going to be filled in and the mountains made low. Now, for those of us who love nature, this doesn't mean, you know, it's all going to get boring and become the plains of North Texas, you know, soon. Or it's not, it's not to say that in heaven it's Kansas and you just have to live in a flat place. No, 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 no. You understand the illustration here is he's saying all the paths are going to be straight so that everyone can get to the Lord as quickly as possible. No obstacles in the way of the people. Have you tried to drive from here to Tennessee and you have to drive like this to get there? Right, it's, 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 it's pretty if you can deal with motion sickness. It's beautiful and it's a lot of fun if you have a lovely vehicle to do it in. But what he's saying is, when it comes to the path that leads to God, 
remove every obstacle out of everyone's way. He's sending messengers. God's the one doing this. He's sending messengers. He's sending His Son. He's sending His Word. He's sending all kinds of people to proclaim so that when anybody realizes that it is time for them to go to Christ, the path is straight and easy to get there. They can go straight to Him now, and that is what John the Baptist is doing. And the goal, the goal of all of this is verse 6, that everyone will see the salvation of God. Amen. And you understand, this is a prophecy. This isn't just what John is preaching here. This is a prophecy from the Old Testament. This is Isaiah that's being quoted, which is to say, this was always God's plan from the very beginning, that there would be an easy path for every last person to come directly to Christ when they were ready to get real about themselves and turn away from their sins and follow Christ. This is the same for us, for you today. The very first thing that I want you guys to notice today is this. John is preaching, verse 3. You, you might notice we started reading in verse 2. That's just because there's a lot of hard names in verse 1. You know, skipped for today. Verse 2. I can read Annas and Caiaphas. We'll skip over uh, everything else. Um, it's joking. Verse 1 is there on purpose to let you know this all happened in a certain time, in a certain place, in exactly a certain way. It gives you the historical... It's important, but for today, what I want us to focus is this. Verse 3, what, uh, what John was doing. He went into all the vicinity of the Jordan, that's the river, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. As I have promised you, the body of what we're talking about today is an explanation for why we do the things that we do. Number one, John's ministry was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John's baptism was not our baptism, the way we baptize, but it was similar. When we baptize, we still carry on this attitude of repentance and changing of life. See, what John was doing was preparing them for Jesus' coming. So John wasn't baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This hadn't been revealed yet by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to teach them. It's not until Matthew 28, until the after Jesus rises from the grave, that He says, now you're going to go and baptize everybody, not just like John did, but now you're going to go baptize everyone in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and teach them to be obedient to everything I've commanded. John is simply preparing a people for the coming of Christ. That's the work of John. John is shouting from the rooftops. He is a voice in the wilderness, ringing the bell as loudly as he can, proclaiming to all of them, get ready because the Lord's anointed is coming. And what is it that they need to do to prepare themselves for Christ coming into their lives? It's repentance. It's time to turn away. What do you need to do to prepare for Christ coming into your life? They must turn away from all the ways they were living that they knew were wrong, that they knew were wicked, so he gets there and he gathers them up. The baptism for them is just a symbol of this. I am going to wash my hands of this old life. I am going to repent and turn and live a new life. The old life, the old person I used to be, that person now, I'm going to bury them like in a grave and I'm going to go and live a new life. Now, that symbolism remains for us in baptism. We see it and talk about it every time we baptize. We will again next Sunday. Somebody is uh, lined up to be baptized next Sunday. I talked to you about this last week. Amongst the symbols for our baptism is us making a commitment of repentance. Uh, just like with John, the first step for us 
is to turn away from the way we've been living. Repent and believe is the command that Christ has had for you and is the command that He has for you today. So that is involved in our symbolism of baptism that we say, I am leaving behind the old life to follow Christ. But that, that's, that's only a small piece of what our baptism symbolizes. Far more importantly, our baptism symbolizes Jesus has washed me clean of my sins. Jesus died and rose again. If I die, I'm going to rise also because Jesus has promised it. The focus of our baptism, it does include our repentance, but the main focus of it is on what Christ has done for us and a public declaration of that. That's simply not included yet in John. All John is doing is calling them to repent and to believe. They just didn't have the whole message to be believed. So for us, what do we do? We likewise spend our lives overjoyed preaching the same sermon as John. We're just on this side of Jesus' death and resurrection, so we know the story of salvation and the forgiveness of sins. They're preparing themselves coming for Christ. We know that Christ came and died and rose again, and the forgiveness of our sins has already been purchased for us. Even before we were born, there's nothing left to keep us from being made right with God today and having eternal life with Him, except that a person would choose not to come and offer themselves to Him. We continue to preach repentance and faith, which is the forgiveness of our sins from God. By way of application about this, this is what we do in our primary ministry. We just happen to know the gospel, the good news of what's happened, and so that's the center focus of it, but we're still calling people to repent and believe it. Uh, we just got the rest of the story. But you know, there's an application for this, this, this uh, sermon about repentance uh, for parenting and for kids. You might think when you're raising a child, perhaps you're helping to raise a grandchild, when you're thinking about kids, you might think, my job is to teach them to be perfect. And I mean, yes, yes, your job is to steer them in the ways they should go. This is wrong, this is right, come and follow the right way. But we must acknowledge that they can't do it, just like we couldn't do it. Without the Holy Spirit, there's no ability to do this. And so while you're kids, you must teach them the ways of the Lord there's something else that they're going to have to learn from you, and they won't know it unless they see you doing it, and you're going to have to teach them to repent. This is some, every child will see you sin. If they're in your house, mom and dad, grandma, grandpa, if the child is in your house long enough, they're going to see you sin. And what they're going to need to see is you repent, because they're going to sin someday. And they're going to need to know how to return immediately to Christ in repentance. I'll tell you today, the application of our faith for this is we have to teach our children to say, I'm sorry. And they're going to learn that because they're going to need to see you saying, I'm sorry, I was wrong. I will no longer do this or speak like this. I'm repenting and turning away from it. We must teach them to do that. Repentance and belief is the central command of it. The gospel is God has loved you and done everything you need for salvation. But then if you're going to ask, like these people asked John, if you're going to ask, what do I need to do then to receive this salvation from God? The answer is simple. Come, friends, let us repent and believe. 
It is in this that we have the grace of God and we become the children of Abraham. The second thing that you'll see here today is verse 6, that everyone will see the salvation of God. Isn't it beautiful what God's plan is? So, okay, what do you want? I don't know. Hopefully to be forgiven and to live a good life before God. But what does God want today? I've got great news for you. God wants to see you forgiven and saved. God's desire today in your life is not to send you on a guilt trip. God's desire today is not to beat you up over the things that you've done in your life. God's today desire today might include rebuking and reproving, but that's only of those who are already His. And those who are already His receive that as a blessing because we know we need it sometimes to be told, you're doing wrong and you don't see it. <laughs> we get that from God and we get that from each other, and it's a blessing. But God's desire today for you is that everyone would see the salvation of God. That's what He wants, and so this is great news for us. This is the season that we live in right now. This is why we do all the things that we do. This is our explanation for our lives and the way we do church. The video at the beginning of church planters doing the hard work of starting churches in very expensive, difficult areas is this. The answer and the reason why they do this is because People need to hear the gospel. People need to know that God wants them saved. And so we show videos and we're collecting the Annie Armstrong offering to support our North American church plants. This is why we do it. Unfortunately, where do you find the most people? In massive cities. Where's the most expensive place to start a church? Yeah, yeah, it goes together. They go hand in hand. And yet there it is. We go everywhere and all over the place to tell people, just like John did, we, for our part, Aiken is no small town at this point, but we, for our small part of the voice in the wilderness, crying out to everybody else that God's desire is salvation, and they too can repent and come and be called children of God. And there's, there's no boundaries or limits to where we are willing to announce this. We'll go wherever God calls us. I hope you'll participate in giving to the Annie Armstrong offering. It goes straight to our missionaries in that way. But there's also been a neat encounter that I've had going on with, you know, our members, Gene and Casey Hodges. Well, Gene's brother, Jason Hodges, works for our North American Mission Board, and he oversees all the church planting in New England, uh, all of those states. And he's gone around to some friends of his, to some churches, and asked them to essentially, the best way I could describe it to you is be a booster, is to essentially be a champion and a booster for certain churches and certain, I should say, not just, not just Gene's, uh, Gene's brother, but also Vicky and Jesse, who are here, <laughs> their, their child, uh, Jason. He's asked us to be boosters. Would we, would we be champions and supportive and friendly to the church plants that are going on in Rhode Island? It fits for us because Rhode Island, as I've said, is the same size as Aiken County. <laughs> it's a small state, <laughs> and so it's the same size as our mission field, give or take a couple of hundred miles. It's not that much larger. It's right about the same. And uh, there are four or five church plants there that are doing a good work. They're already there. They're on the ground. They don't need a bunch of financial support for us right now, but they could use some friendship, and they could use some encouragement. They could use some prayer and some partners. They could use a booster club. Jason asked if we would do this for them. Tonight, Sunday night, I hope you guys will come back at 5 o'clock. Is that when our evening service is? I just show up. All right, it's 5 o'clock. Tonight at 5 o'clock, 
Uh, I'll give you a little explanation. I'll have some pictures that you can see. Uh, Trevor and I and Laura, we went up and met some of these church planters a few weeks ago, and then we went and met with uh, Jason and some of these other ministers to talk about strategies on how we can help and support these churches. They're not asking for large uh, donations right now. They're financially stable, but a lot of them just don't have a large network of other churches that they know, and they could use the support and encouragement. You know, one of them is this team of like 30 young married couples and college students who have all just moved there from Des Moines, Iowa, in order to start a church uh, and reach all the college campuses, because there's five college campuses uh, right there in Providence. You might know Providence College from the basketball tournament that was happening just now. They saw their first salvation this week. They've only been there for two months, but they saw their first salvation this week, he told me, in worship service. They're just getting started, and we could do so much to help and support and encourage these ones. There's another one that's in a very inner city area, an area of like 200,000 people, and there's no gospel witnesses. All the churches there are either saying, do these things, follow these steps, and God will love you, or they're prosperity ones. They're saying, if you have enough faith and give enough money, God will love you. They're not preaching the proper gospel. But this church is, and people keep giving them buildings. They gave them a sanctuary that was condemned, and then the house next door, which was a drug house. And, but they've received this real estate and, and been doing construction, and they could use a group of people from our church to go up there and work and do some labor. And you know what? We got some guys who could do some labor. Uh, that's a trip we could do. They also have a bunch of people in doors and neighborhoods nearby that we could go help them share the gospel do VBS and church camp. There's all kinds of needs and ways that we could support them. I'd love for your Sunday school class to just take one of these churches and start praying for them and give them a call and write them a note and put a big poster of their families on your wall. We could do so much with these other places and churches. We already have partnerships in Pittsburgh and in other places, but the only extent to how much we can do and help other people is how much we're willing to. And y'all, I think we've got a lot of energy to bear much fruit for Christ. Everyone will see the salvation of God is the calling here, but not everyone will see it from a position of having trusted Christ. Let us do what we can while we can for all of these places. The next thing John teaches them is they, they begin, you know, they hear the word preached, they're terrified by the reality of the fact that there's no fruit in their lives, they are worthy of judgment. And they cry out to John and say, what do we need to do to be right with God? If God is coming, what's, what's our course? What do we have to do? And John says to them, it is time to get right before God, and here's what you do. Let the one who has two shirts give to the one who has none. You know, there's this thing that happens where as you read Scripture, certain verses and passages are just burned into your mind, and they come to you at certain times when you need it. Somebody says something, something happens, and that verse comes right back into your mind, and you know it's exactly what God is calling to do in that moment. Um, my mother-in-law recommended me this book by Timothy Keller, a retired pastor, called uh, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. So not the most exciting uh, book, but lots of encouragement here. It's, uh, if you're interested in this, I'm, I'm loving it and, and very encouraged by it. It's somewhat technical. He says this at the beginning. It's the first third of the book is him talking about all the world religions and how they answer the problem of suffering in this world. And then he talks about how Christianity is superior. Our answer to suffering is better than all of these. He talks about atheism uh, as an answer. And uh, he says, our answer for suffering is that God has purpose and meaning and that God's going to make it all right is the only answer that's remotely helpful to anyone. So it's a powerful apologetic, and I really appreciate it, but also each chapter of his ends with a letter uh, from somebody in his church. 
talking about the suffering they went through and how it went. Allow me to digress and read this to you. This is a letter from Tess. My crisis of faith occurred early in adulthood and detached from any real personal suffering. In my training to be a doctor, I had, I had uh, participated in the care of untold numbers of tragedies, seven-year-olds being thrown from pickup trucks, fatal automobile accidents, 25-year-olds diagnosed with breast cancer, heart attacks on Christmas Day. I had seen it all. I had treated it all. I had wrestled with all these challenging circumstances, but I had worked through them with my husband, Barry. Our faith had been tested, but God increased our faith such that we trusted Him even if we didn't understand Him. Over the next several years, as my understanding of the complexities of human psychology grew, I began to develop more and more amazement that anything in the human body ever went right. How any baby was born without birth defect is a miracle. How we could continue to breathe and digest and fight cancer while sleeping was a marvel. The idea of nature being in a very delicate, very tenuous balance, all steered by the sheer grace of God, was driven home to me on a daily basis. So the idea of pain and suffering occurring to people uh, makes people ask, why me? It wasn't a part of my narrative. More, the question became, why not me? What did I do to deserve this unmerited string of unbroken blessings? But then in early 2012, my mother was diagnosed with metastatic and recurring ovarian cancer. It was a terminal prognosis. We displaced our family of four, pregnant with our third boy, to my parents' house in Arizona to meet with her until the end. Three weeks after our arrival, she died and she was reunited with our Lord. You know, in the last days of her physical illness, she became increasingly delirious, but remarkably, what she was quoting was Scripture. It was so embedded in her heart that when the disease had ravaged her mind and reduced her to incoherent ramblings, what was left was the Word of God. And as we buried her, my prayer was that the Lord would place His Word so deeply in my heart that when my mind was in extremis, I would only be able to speak His Word back to Him. Then in August of the same year, we welcomed our third boy in three years. Our oldest child turned three six weeks later. Life was near perfect again. But 14 weeks later, on a beautiful, mild November afternoon, I returned from work to the blissful chaos of our home, just when our nanny was waking up the baby from her nap, his nap rather, but her screams of terror took several seconds to penetrate my consciousness. I walked into our bedroom knowing exactly what had happened. I knew that he had died before I laid my eyes on him. My very first thought was Job 1.21. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It was followed closely by 1 Thessalonians 5.18. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. All the years of training combined with the incredible power of the Holy Spirit to equip you for exactly what you need when you need it came over me. I was on the phone with my husband at the time, and I told him that Wyatt had died and that he needed to come home immediately. I performed CPR while speaking on the phone with 911. I knew it was just a formality. Policemen and detectives came and went and ruled out a homicide. 
The medical examiner's office arrived to take my baby's body, and I refused. I was not giving up my baby without a fight, or at least an argument with God. I knew what he said about asking and receiving, and not receiving because we didn't ask, and that the widow who annoys the judge enough to wear him down and grant his request, a faith the size of a mustard seed. For one hour, my husband and I, alone with our nanny, prayed for the resurrection of our son. Actually, physical resurrection, like Lazarus, we went to the throne of God boldly, completely lucid, not grief-stricken, and asked forthrightly that God would give us our child back. But not my will, but yours be done. God heard our prayer, and He said no. And I told Him, okay, but you're going to have to get us through this, because we cannot in the end, the cause of death was positional asphyxia, SIDS. He wasn't even sick. But the end hasn't been written. The Lord has shown us over and over again how He never intended us to, for us to go through this alone. He gave us Himself, and He gave us the body of Christ, the church. The morning after Wyatt died, two of our friends showed up without calling to look out for our other two children. Our church community mobilized an army of prayer warriors and help warriors. Meals were sent. Our families flew in from Nicaragua and Arizona and Arkansas and Texas. People gave up their apartments for our families and rented up an entire block of apartments so that our family could move into it and be near us. They delivered meals. They planned and executed a memorial service and printed bulletins. Every single last detail was taken care of in a typical type A New Yorker style with precision and excellence, and without our knowledge or consent. So we were allowed to descend to the very depths of our grief and experience it in all of its agony and emerge on the other side. When we emerged, our community had been transformed into unity through suffering, and we were pregnant. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's awfully powerful. <laughs> I think it's a good book. I recommend it to you. You can't have my copy. I'm still working on it. <laughs> For our purposes today, as we're not talking about suffering, as I read this this past week, the connection is, and what I knew, is those times in life when Scripture comes straight to you, the command of the work of God comes straight to you. Perhaps you've had these situations have you not? If not, keep following Christ a little longer. It will happen. Somebody will say something. Something will happen at work. You'll hear something in the family, and immediately the Scripture verse will come back to your mind because God has planted it in your heart, and you've done the hard work of knowing it and bringing it into yourself fully and completely. And the, world, the Word will be right there when you need it, and God will steer you. You and I will be just like these people who came to John the Baptist saying, I'm here, I believe, what do I need to do? And the Word of God comes powerfully from Scripture to each of us to say, this is exactly what you need to do at this time. It happened to me, uh, oh gosh, it was like a year and a half ago now, um, when our good friend and church member, uh, Jeff Miller, said that he needed a kidney, and for one reason or another, uh, his children weren't going to be able to donate. They were, dis they were uh, disqualified for various medical reasons. A shame and a tragedy. When he said that, this verse right here that I'm preaching to you today comes to mind. 
Let the one who has two coats give to the one who has none. And I told Jeff, yeah, I'll volunteer to, we'll see if we're a match. I've got two. And turns out, Jeff and I are perfect matches. I mean, perfect. And so, uh, April 20th, uh, Jeff's getting one of my kidneys. And so, uh, I... <laughs> Nonsense. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying this to flirt with you. I... Uh, my goal was to never tell anyone, and uh, I, I was really working out in my mind how I could not talk about this. It's, it's no big deal. It's just the sorts of things we do. Scripture comes to mind, you obey it. You guys do this all the time. Uh, I'm not even remotely the first person in this church to do something like this, but the Word of the Lord came quickly, this very Word of the Lord, and that's why this is an explanation for why I do what I do and why we do what we do. Let the one who has two coats give to the one who has none. It's a no-brainer. This is how we work. Um, so you know, I should probably tell you a few logistics. I said I was trying to figure out how to never tell you guys, but I can't, I can't disappear for a few weeks without raising some level of suspicion. Somebody would have been, where's Bird at? What's that guy doing? Where has he gone to? Um, I'll have to disappear a little bit. Uh, it's after Easter. We've scheduled this for April 20th, the week after Easter. Uh, just some brief logistics, since you'll ask. For Jeff's things, by all means, ask Jeff. He'll tell you his story on his side. For me, it's, sh it's shocking. It's one night in the hospital. We're going down to MUSC in Charleston, which is the number one donation hospital in America. Um, I'm in the hospital one night. It's laparoscopic generally, except I get one of those old like appendix scars, you know, small one on the waistline. And, and so that all it means is really the recovery for me is just, you know, holding a pillow while I cough and laugh. Somebody said, somebody said at one point like, hey, if you laugh a lot, it's going to be painful. And I was like, I'm out. I can't do it. <laughs> I, uh, I laugh a lot. It's going to be... So I'll just be, uh, I'll just be groaning uh, for a couple of weeks, but it's not too bad. It's just a little bit, and I'll, I'll recover. Uh, we, we will be in perfectly capable hands. Trevor Burrow, our incredible associate pastor, will be preaching for us uh, for several weeks, and uh, you guys are going to learn some great things from him and be exhorted in your faith. Um, as I say, I don't tell this to you to commend myself. I'm not a good illustration of Scripture here. I'm telling this to you to explain why I do what I do and what it means. But you already knew these things, and it's why you do what you do. This has always been the attitude of this church. I'm just keeping up with the rest of you guys in a lot of ways, because some of y'all, as soon as you hear of a need, you make it known. In fact, while we go to Scripture primarily and first, there's a saying, a motto here at Talatha Baptist Church from our old friend Carl Hendricks. Carl's passed away now several years, but there wasn't a time that I saw him when he didn't put his hand on my shoulder and kiss me on the face, if you knew Carl, uh, but put a hand on my shoulder and say, have I got anything you need? Without fail. I meant to test him on this several times and ask for something weird. Uh, you know, I could use that pair of shoes, maybe. Uh, how far are you going to take this? But Carl would always say, have I got anything you need? And it's always been an attitude of this church to each other and to everyone around here. Have I got anything you need? What do you need? We'll do it. This is not an explanation for what I do. This is an explanation for what we do. This has always been what we do as a church. Have I got anything you need? Does somebody have two? Share with the one who has none. This is the way of John the Baptist, of the Baptist, but it's that way because it's the way of Christ. And we follow the way of Jesus Christ, our Lord, in all things. In conclusion, so what are we going to do here today? 
Let us live a life of great hope and joy in Jesus Christ, our Savior. We believe, and so our life is defined by a certain series of prepositional phrases. I was creating a sentence that became a long, long run-on of prepositions. We believe, and so we live a life of turning from sin to God by faith, for joy, in hope, with fruit. That's how you put this together. What is the Christian life? The Christian life is from sin, away from sin, to God, by faith, for joy, in hope, with great fruit. Let us labor on in all things that everyone can join us in this hope and joy. Y'all, our hope and our joy is so great. Our hope and our joy is so great that even when we go through sufferings, God uses it to grow us and be formative for us. Good times, bad times, doesn't matter. God's at work in us leading us towards joy and hope that we could bear great fruit in all seasons. Friends, let us not waste this season, no matter how difficult. Let us instead say, blessed be the name of the Lord. So what do we do? We live a great hope and joy in Christ. We turn from sin to God by faith for joy and hope with fruit. And finally, what do we do? Let the one who has two coats give to the one who has none. Or in our language, have I got anything you need? Father God, I thank you that you even let us be a part of the good work that you're doing. There is not a part of us that we have not given over wholly and completely to you. And you, dear Lord, dear Savior, call on us in any and every way and we will be delighted to go where you steer us, to follow where you lead us, and to trust that you will work all of this out for the good of those who trust you. I pray that you would remind us how joyful it is, what great delight there is in believing and repenting and obeying Jesus Christ our Lord. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're a coming forward church, and so...